Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 354 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. My guest today is Joe Saxton. I met her at last year's Global Leadership Summit in Chicago. And man, she dropped a couple of bombs that just really, really hit me. And I said, hey, can, uh, can you come on my podcast? So anyway, she's a leader worth following. So glad that uh, you're tuning in for this. And today's episode is brought to you by Glue. You can learn more about your church's online audience so you can better engage them at glueinsights.com forward slash carry. That's G-L-O-O insights.com forward slash carry. And I'm so excited about a brand new resource Tony Morgan's Unstuck Group has. They've got a one-day masterclass about the key shifts churches need to make because of coronavirus. You can actually get a free copy of Lesson 1 at theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. So anyway, I hope your summer is going okay. We are going to get into something. This Today's episode is a little bit of a cautionary tale because I want to pick Joe's brain in this conversation about burnout. And uh, she had a more severe case than I did. And that is something that's really on my heart. I've just talked to so many leaders who are so tired. I mean, you know, as you've heard a million times here on this podcast, 2020 is a year nobody expected, nobody signed up for. And yet here we are. And the line that I wrote down, it just hit me. I remember the moment she said it uh, from the stage at the GLS last year is you have one body and your leadership lives in it. I'm like, oh yeah. And I almost killed that body. So uh, we're going to talk about that and uh, also uh, a bunch of other things. It's a wide-ranging conversation. Joe Saxton is an author, speaker, podcast host, and leadership coach. She's dedicated her career to growing leadership teams around the world and empowering women to find their purpose in their personal lives and leadership. Uh, in her book, More Than Enchanting, Breaking Through the Barriers to Influence Your World, she talks about, uh, well, many things, including the role of women in church and society. Her latest book, The Dream of You, helps readers tackle their past, their identity, and so much more. She's also spearheaded an initiative aimed to help women grow their leadership skills. So I'm thrilled to have Joe on the podcast today. If you're a new listener, make sure you subscribe. And at the end of the podcast, I'm going to do a What I'm Thinking About segment And I'm going to talk to you about the importance of sleep, why I prioritize it, and then I'm going to give you a couple of pro tips, some hacks on how to sleep better. This is something that I have become a little bit obsessed with over the years, and I promise you, the better you sleep, the higher your productivity. That is the carrot in front of the horse for me. So anyway, uh, we'll talk about that during what I'm thinking about. Well, as you all know, 2020 is a crazy year. And this year has disrupted and accelerated the church's need to engage with people online. But that complicates things. Like, how do you know who's actually listening? So I am super excited about Insights Plus. It's a brand new resource. I've had a backstage tour of it uh, from my friends, your friends at Glue, and it removes the confusion behind who is watching you online to bridge the digital gap and restore the connection or actually build a connection between you and your online audience. If you're interested in learning more, you can get so many metrics on this from like age demographics to whether they attend your church or not. Yeah, it's all possible. Head on over to glueinsights.com forward slash carry. That's G-L-O-O 
insights.com forward slash carry to learn more. I think this is probably one of the biggest gifts I've seen to the church in a long, long time. Technology that can actually help you figure out who's out there. Also, the Unstuck Group is getting alongside you to help you navigate this uh, crazy time. So my team at Connexus just wrapped up another strategic planning session with Tony Morgan at the Unstuck Group to clarify what's next for us. And I can't recommend Tony's coaching enough. Uh, I hired Tony, uh, I think probably for the first time, maybe eight years ago, when I was still the lead pastor at our church and had him in a number of different times. And I don't know about you, but I just find the best leaders always have coaches. So here's one way to do it, okay? Their masterclass is only $99. And if you register for it, it's a one-day masterclass on July 30th. It's all about the key shifts churches need to make because of coronavirus. So you will walk away if you register for that with action steps and clarity around what needs to change to thrive in the post-pandemic world. Now, my listeners get free access to lesson one from the Masterclass Guidebook. To action that deal, head on over to theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, and you can download your copy immediately and then uh, join them on July 30th. Uh, Tony's one of the greatest thinkers out there in my view, and uh, he sees a lot of stuff that I think a lot of leaders miss. So you'll want to check that out, theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. So, Well, with all that said, without further ado, let's jump into what I hope will be a life-giving and uh, helpful conversation with Joe Saxton. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I've been listening to you for ages, so I'm excited to be able to talk face-to-face with you. Well, I'm I'm so glad that you can build into our leaders today. And it was really nice to get to spend some time with you personally last August in Chicago yeah. at the Global Leadership Summit. That's kind of a surreal experience being able to talk to hundreds of thousands of leaders at once, isn't it? It's amazing. And the fact that it that the event keeps on happening through the year. And so you hear from people through, for the next year. So I'm currently hearing from Brazil. And it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Really? That's yeah. that's amazing, you know? It's great. It's absolutely great. There is I no other it. event like it in the world, Joe. And you said a few things there that I'd like to make sort of the springboard for our conversation. You got a brand new yeah. book that released a little while ago called Ready to Rise, which we'll get into as well. Um, yeah. But you asked this really fascinating question, which is, who were you before anyone told you who you were supposed to be? That's a great question. Can you unpack that for us a little bit, Joe? Yeah, I I think it's a question that has helped me come into my own as a leader. And for the um, leaders that I coach, help them come into their own because we pick up things through our lives. You know, there there are our gifts and our dreams and ideas. And then there's life that happens to you. There's the way that people happen to you that may steer you a little from your dreams. Um, I think of many of the church leaders I've worked with over the years who no one planned to go into lots of meetings, you know, no, <laughs> no one planned. That was not the game plan to be in meetings from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. They oh, were very drawn true. by something, you know, the business leader, they were drawn by something. And I found it really helpful for us as leaders to just check whether the oughts and the shoulds have begun to shape us and distort us in some way. And uh, and I think it's a great way to get a signpost to those original dreams as well. How did that happen for you? What, like, what, what were you told to be? Oh, well, there were, there were a lot of messages. I grew up in London in the, um, I was born in the seventies and the time I was growing up in London, there was a lot of racial tension 
Mm -hmm. I'm a Nigerian immigrant. And there was a lot of pressure in terms of whether immigrants were stealing jobs, the kind of people you were. And so there was very much, it was a quite a negative and a pejorative thing. I mean, it depended on if you read all the tabloids all day <laughs> in terms of how valuable you were. But it, but then it, it, it kind of labeled you before you had a chance to be, hmm. you know, it labeled you before you it labeled your potential. So you're seen as a Nigerian, you were judged by the color of your skin, very by your gender. Very much so. And, but um, gender, um, ethnicity and, you know, but in the time of, um, when the first things about allegedly Nigerian scams came out in terms of online, oh, um, yeah, you're right. There, there was a particular slur. And I, I remember saying to someone, I goes, did it ever occur to you? They may not have been Nigerian. Did it ever occur <laughs> to you that honesty was not going to be the key thing here? Do you, <laughs> do you know what I mean? That they, that they may have been from somewhere else and covering their tracks. I'm still waiting way. for that transfer into my bank account, Joe, you know, no. that's Rather crazy. That's, coming. you know, that's such a good point. That's such a good point, but you don't, it's like what's happened with coronavirus too. If you're Asian, yeah. like the amount of pushback Asian people are getting right now yeah. is, is huge. And you're like, well, you know, that, that could be anybody. Like you think Absolutely. about all the stuff I've done in my life that has hurt other people and you didn't even do anything. I mean, my goodness, it was just the color of your skin. It was like where your parents were from. Absolutely. Uh, and it's dehumanizing. And when you're dehumanized, you do, you get detached from your potential. You mm. get um, detached from your gifts and abilities and your qualities, even if not in your eyes, in someone else's. And so for me, I felt from, even from my childhood, from my earliest days, that I had a lot to prove and a lot to defend. I had to defend my worth and value, the, my, the possibilities of what I could contribute to the world. And I remember my aunt sitting me down um, when I was about seven years old. And, so, and she and my mom and many others had moved to England in the 60s and had encountered all kinds of racial distress and challenges as they were kind of trying to adjust to this world as well. And she said, Joe, it's going to be really hard for you to make it in this country. And so you're going to have to be at least twice as good as everybody else. Oh, wow. She said, it's not going to be enough to be good. And it's not going to, and she said, you won't get away with what your friends get away with. And, you know, Carrie, the thing that struck, struck me most about it when we were having this conversation was that she didn't sound angry or emotional. It was a matter of fact. Hey, let me just tell you a couple of things. Wow. That was the tone. Th this is how it is. This is how we get by it. Just make sure you're really good at what you do. And then we moved on to another conversation. We were talking about what we were eat, eating for dinner that day. It was that on a level. So Joe, what was, what was that like to hear that when you were seven years old? Like what impact did that have on you? To be honest, it felt medicinal, really. It mm. felt like this is the advice. And I had been seeing, I, I mean, sadly, even though I was seven, I, I wasn't, um, new to experiencing racism or sexism in some way. And, and not just from kids on the playground, from authority figures around. So on one level, it was, okay, here's a plan. Right. It felt like a plan to progress forward. Obviously as a kid, you don't think of the cost of a plan that you make and mm. the challenges of that plan. You just think of the plan. And I, I heard the urgency of the situation, but I didn't think beyond that. So in my mind, the person I should be was, I'd have to be twice as good to be seen as equal. Wow. Isn't that interesting? You know, and I'm sure skin color does play a role. My parents were immigrants, which is interesting. 
my grandparents in particular came over. My mom was like 10. And, yeah. um, you know, piecing family history together, uh, at that time, they weren't British. They weren't analysts, and I love the Brits, you know, so it's fine. But they weren't British. They weren't Scottish. Yeah. They weren't Irish. They were Dutch. And the Dutch were seen as kind of those people, yeah. right? Like, And so they lived in some pretty squalid housing, and this was the 50s and the whole deal, and they worked their way up. But it's interesting that they never had to have that conversation with me. I don't remember one conversation where they said, hey, Carrie, because you have an impossible to pronounce last name, you know, this is going to be a, a really difficult life for you. I just heard that this was the land of opportunity. And I think it's really important for people to hear what you have to say and to know that it's not the same for everybody and, and to be sensitive to that. What are, what are some other moments along the way, like even think about your journey into adulthood and then into leadership as someone who's gone on to write books and speak and coach and, you know, help others. Uh, what have some other shoulds that you heard along the way? I think some of them revolved around whether I should be quieter, whether <laughs> as a woman leader, <laughs> whether I should be quieter, whether I should want to be involved in church plants and congregations, whether I should want to be a communicator and a speaker, whether that was um, a door available to somebody like me or, um, and it wasn't just a long, I mean, obviously there's a, a broad theological continuum in the church. And I wasn't even necessarily referring to that because there is a, a whole framework of conviction and people stay true to those things. But even in the context where um, technically, technically they welcomed um, women in various spaces of leadership, not just with women, but men also. Practically, it was sometimes a <laughs> it was sometimes a different deal. So some of the oughts and shoulds were: was I okay to come as me, mm. or did I need to assimilate into a particular way that was deemed the right way? And was that the right way, or was it a cultural difference that was actually happening here? Were there different things just by virtue of different life experience, like you say? You draw on the story of your parents and their experiences and how it's informed your journey. I would, I was often the only black woman in the room. I was often, I was most pretty sure I was the only woman in the room most of the time. And so some of the shoulds were, should I speak up? Mm. And um, if I, if I, if I say something assertively, how will that be interpreted? Will I be deemed as arrogant or worse? Um, there are no nice words when it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> will I be deemed as threatening? Um, if I'm, if I seem passionate, will I be deemed as angry? And what do I do as I seek to communicate healthily and to be a healthy leader as well? I want to be a healthy leader. Like all of us, we're there to serve, aren't we? But how do we navigate the cultural nuances in that? And so there were some shoulds where I remember someone said, um, like, I remember someone saying, saying to me, when I heard a Joe was speaking, I thought it was a guy. Um, and, and I was about to speak. <laughs> well, welcome to the world of Carrie. Uh, no one expects a guy. <laughs> you see our names, Carrie, our names. I know, been, I know, Joe. We've been mixing it up. And um, times when people are like, you know, if you, if you want to, you know, you could be really good if you would just tone it down a little. Ooh. Or if you... Um, or you should, you know, you should be married if you're going to lead. I, I got married at 29. And so um, whilst nationally and internationally, that's not especially late in the church community, that was late um, for my yeah, peers. Yeah. And so for some, it was like, well, if you really want to do these things, what you need is to get a good guy and do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And so those were some of the shoulds. My marital status was an or should. Um, how I showed up in the room, um, needing to be non-threatening, needing not to ask too many questions was some, not always an issue. I think sometimes for some, it was a surprise. And then as we got to know each other, we just got on with it. So uh, can I ask you, do you know your Enneagram number? Oh, yes. I am like you, an eight. I figured, I figured just, <laughs> you know, five minutes into this and knowing you a little bit, I thought you're probably an eight. So that creates challenges in and of itself. I mean, take all the other factors away. Being an eight, I always say it makes me feel like the report card where I failed and I had to bring it home and explain it to my parents, <laughs> you know, being an eight. But I would love, uh, I would love, <laughs> Joe, for you just to answer like, okay, because we all need self-regulation, right? Like none of us walks into a room perfectly. Whatever your Enneagram number is, you're either too shy, too timid, too bold, too brash. How do you sort that out or how have you sorted that out versus what part of that is because I'm a woman or because I'm Nigerian or because I don't fit your your idea of what a leader looks like or sounds like versus, oh, I actually do have to turn it down. Do you know what I mean? How do you navigate that? Yeah. And I, it's been, it's, it's been a journey and the journey has involved a great self-awareness of mm. saying, okay, okay, I want to be a healthy leader. It's made me pay attention to my, the broken parts of my story that have damaged me. It's made me pay attention to how I've responded to the pressures of the day. Some like how have I, how has racism and sexism impacted me and damaged me? Um, how has that dehumanized me? And how have I respond responded to that? Where do I where have I needed to get help and support with people? That's been one of the p things that's done. It's helped me really build a village of safe people around me mm. um, to to do life with. Uh, but I think. Often where the Enneagram 8 male, and feel free and correct me if I'm wrong on this, is sometimes seen as a dynamic leader, threatening to some, but dynamic and strong and assertive, sometimes in a woman that is typified as a threatening person. Yes, uh, uh, Ian, Ian Cron has talked about that at length, and he says that's where yeah. you get into the not nice words very quickly. Like, yeah. oh, she's very just uh, fill in the blank. And, and I think that's a very fair observation. I just want to amplify something you just said, which I think is really helpful. Uh, a lot of stuff went off in my mind when you said it. Healthy, right? If you look at the, the Enneagram, healthy is a wonderful filter to what is yeah. natural and acceptable and helpful as opposed to, okay, where do I need to course correct here? Because we all need to course correct, right? We do. We do. And the pressures of the pressures of leadership and the pressures of the day, well, they come to bear on us and we lead from the inside out. So we need to know what's happening on the insides. Mm. And we and rather than just give ourselves a pass and say, well, um, because I've had a bad day, this is how I'm going to react. I want to be a whole leader, you know, and yeah. I want to I want to lead fully with integrity with an as an integrated person. But that means doing the work when required to become whole as well. And, and I think in the end, Carrie, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was when it came to owning who I was, was almost agreeing with God about that the way I'm wired is not an accident. Hmm. He was not shocked with my design. He knew I was, I was an extrovert. He knew I was assertive. He knew he designed it that way. And it was a delight, not a problem or not a concession. God isn't like, oh my gosh, I gave her an intellect. Oh, what, what do I do? <laughs> you know, he's not having a crisis and feeling overwhelmed because there are strong men and women on earth. Um, and, and as I began to recognize 
this is how he made you say yes to how he made you wow say just agree with him agree with him on your giftings and rather than the cultural expectations of those things i i think that actually helped me pursue health more more yeah. Because it wasn't from a place of shame and it wasn't from feeling a threat to somebody. It was from a place of agreeing with the creator and wanting to serve well. No, and I think it's such a great question. You know, who were you before anyone told you who you're supposed to be? Because there are business leaders who are trying to fit into the suit or the corporate culture and go, this isn't really me. There are preachers who have adopted a vocabulary and they're like, yeah, that's not really me. I mean, yeah. it just, it just, it permeates into so many aspects of our life where in trying to fit in, whether that is because of color of your skin, your gender, or just the culture of the place, you end up feeling inauthentic and in a denial of who God created. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the world misses out for that. I think yeah. we don't lead to our full potential. I think that our business leaders are held back. Our creatives are held back. Our church leaders are held back. And we don't, um, we second guess our dreams or ideas or we overcompensate, which is equally problematic. And rather than bring the richness of our difference and the richness of our wiring to our leadership. Hmm. How have you, because I want to, I want to, you said a few things that really, really spoke to me. So I want to I want to move on, but this has been very rich. How have you become more comfortable with who you were created to be? How have you become more comfortable with being authentically, healthily you? Yeah, I think um, I'm from a I'm from a collective culture. Nigeria is a more collective culture, and so the people around you are really are are highly important. And so I think my siblings have had a huge role in it because they know the whole journey. <laughs> they know who you are all day long. Um, but I, I, and I think it has been a, th those moments when I have been faithful to the best of my knowledge, to my skill set, when it's been building a team and, and the sense of it feeling like I'm coming alive. There is a healing even in leading in the way you're wired. Yes, there is. And so I think that has made, made me, um, pursue it even more, you know, um, cause the other way burns you out and you and I both know that burnout is no fun, you know, Absolutely. Um, round peg, square hole, no fun. And so, and so I think it helped me become comfortable in that way. And I, I, I there have been moments where I would like take a scripture. Um, in this case, I'd take Psalm one, three, nine and say, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And I'd apply that to me as the leader. Mm. It doesn't mean I'm right all the time <laughs> at all. It's not saying I'm perfect. It's, I think those things have helped. Community has helped. Um, dealing with the broken pieces of my story has helped. And, and being in environments where there's a healthy fit has helped. Yeah. Being, in, being mm. in team settings where people have become curious about difference. And so we've learned and grown together where I've been able to show up as I am. And that has sometimes meant saying, hey, this is the racism I experienced today and I'm really angry about it. Mm. Or this is the sexism I encountered today. And I know it's far from your story, but because we're a team, you need to hear this part of the story and you need to weep with me. I'm not going to ask you to fix it. I've been living with this since I was a, since I was a three-year-old. I know how to, know how to fix it, but I need you, need you to hear my lived experience. Um, mm. That's part of our journey as team together. And that's actually helped a lot. Being with teams where people have listened and sometimes wept on my guys who have wept on my behalf um, mm. for the misogyny that I've encountered or got angry on my behalf 
and um, for the racism they've watched me encounter and they've watched how I've been treated and they, they'll call people out on my behalf in that, in that, in that space. That has been a really healing thing because then you've got a safe place to show up as a leader because I just want to get on with the leading, you know, that mm. at the end of the day, I just want to get on and take the call. Now that's really helpful. You know, the other place my mind went is when you're comfortable with who you are, it's a very good decision filter because you can quickly say, oh, that's not me. No, I'm not going to do that. That that would that would not be authentic. And I had a harder so time true. when It makes I was the nose so much swifter. Yeah. All right. Shifting gears. You said something that was one of yeah. my top takeaways at the GLS last year. Um, and I'll get to it. Uh, oh, yeah, here it is. You have one body and your leadership lives in it. I'm like, whoa, okay. So you have one body, your leadership lives in it. If your body could talk to you, what would you want? What would it want to say? So that observation rocked me as somebody who's almost 15 years on the other side of burnout now. Um, your your leadership does live in your body. So can you unpack that for us, Joe? That was just worth the flight and the price of admission to me. Hmm. That's so gracious of you. Um, I think simply put, your body doesn't lie. Mm. Your body doesn't lie. And I, what I learned the hard way, like many of us do, insist on doing, I'd come out of a very painful church situation where a number of us, including the senior pastor, we all left at the same time. Wow. Um, and because it was the cleanest way to do it. And so, and even then it was agony. And I was just trying to keep everything going. You know, that's how it is in times of crisis. We our parents, we are friends, we are leaders, we're taking care of everybody the best that we can. And so that that taking care of everybody else somehow justifies the, the hours and we don't notice the hours go by and we don't eat as well and we don't sleep as well and we're not hydrated <laughs> and, mm. and all of these things are happening to us. And my body got fed up of it. My body got fed up of me pretending everything was okay. And so at night I would be having anxiety attacks and my mind would be racing. I'd be clawing my throat because I couldn't breathe. And it would happen three or four times a night, every night. And in the wow. morning I was making breakfast for my children. Um, and it, it was agonizing. And I was, I, I was seeing a therapist at the time. I, and, and that, but my body was catching up to everything. And it, I basically ended up in urgent care with heart palpitations. And I remember um, the doctor saying to me, when did you last sleep? Hmm. And I said to him, oh, oh I slept in February. And oh, <laughs> Kerry, it's like slow motion. It's like, it's like slow motion even now. He, um, he put his pen down. He put his notepad down. He turned and he looked at me and says, Mrs. Saxton, it's October. Wow. And I just, and he said, insomnia is what is happening. And it was important for him to name it, for me <sighs> to finally acknowledge my, what my body had been saying all along. Something is fundamentally wrong. You are not okay. And you cannot keep over-functioning in a bid to make it better someday. Um and it, I mean, it was really painful. It was so, so painful. And I know for, I'm, I'm sure it's part of your story as well. We don't burn out because we want to. No. We burn out because of the other things that are driving us and, and often trying to help everybody else or the old stories, the oughts and shoulds of who we're supposed to be are so loud. And in times of crisis, it's intensified. And so I think it's made me have to take stock and say, okay, it's time to listen up here when your body starts talking. 
when it talks by your sleeplessness, when it's the aches and pains that don't go away, when you're having stress-related symptoms in some way. And remind yourself that you may have great ideas and be a wonderful businessman or woman, a wonderful innovator, a great creative. But if your body's out, you're out. Mm. You're out. And it's not worth it. So um, my experience, Joe, would say that a lot of leaders who are burning out or are burned out don't realize they're burned out. They just thought it was normal, right? Nobody sleeps at night. Um, Everyone's tired all the time. Um, Yeah, my passion's gone, but isn't that life? What were some of the signs? Like, can you give us an idea of the chronology? Like, was this an overnight thing? Did it build up over a course of years? And then what were some of the conditions that led you to that hospital bed in urgent care where the doctor said it's October? Um, Some of the signs were friends who I dismissed too quickly asking if I was okay. Mm. What were they seeing in you? They were just seeing me keep going and they had seen the circumstances and my, and and I'm, like you, a pretty straight shooter. So I'd say, yeah, it's been really tough and it's really hard. And they're like, we hear you kind of being vulnerable, but we see you going a hundred miles an hour. So it's great that you're telling us how you feel, but it doesn't seem to be impacting um, you slowing down and reflecting in some way. You're, you've got the right checklist and yet it's not impacting things. And so people would be like, how are you really, Joe? Really? And I'd say it, but I still hadn't computed that I needed to stop. So that was one of... Was it was that a stressor for you? Uh, it's interesting. I had a conversation with a previous podcast guest named Steve Cuss, who said that one of the ways we work out our anxiety sometimes is by working more. Is your is that a stressor to you? Like when you get stressed, your idea is I'm going to step on the gas pedal? Yeah. And I think particularly in this moment, because there were so many young adults who I was working with who were hurting, ah. um, I was particularly concerned that they would be okay. Mm. And I was like, I've had hard times before. This is their first big church disappointment. I want to come alongside them so that they're not bitter in 10 years time. So it was all very reasoned. I'd had it explained in my head, you know? (laughs) So, okay. So that was one sign. You had friends who you should have listened to that you didn't listen to. What were some of the other signs? Um, I mean, I think the sleeplessness itself was the sign that I was tossing and turning and my mind was racing. I just couldn't sleep. And so I'd stay up later and later to avoid sleeping. And it's like, how many times are you going to watch the same episode? You know, like for me, Kerry, when I can say the the lines of Modern Family, I've probably watched that episode <laughs> enough. You know? <laughs> you know? No, the whole dialogue. That, yeah. That was happening. I was like, Cam's going to say this. Now they're going to say that. I'm like, Joe, this is not a good sign. Um, because I was clearly, it wasn't even for the entertainment value. I, it, there was an avoidance going on. Hmm. Um, and so I think that's one of the things, the the things I was avoiding were a bit, was a bit of an indicator. Um, the fact that I was even avoiding sleep and was my way of rationalizing the fact that I can't sleep. It's like, you know, it's not that I can't sleep. I'm just watching some late night TV to decompress mm. um, was one of the things. Um, I think, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I had some good, good people who who loved me, who were committed to me, but we were all going through it. I think that was the hard yeah, part in that moment. Yeah the key team who did life together, we all had various manifestations of stress. Um, all had various manifestations at the time. So, so that was probably another indicator. And I, I think that I wasn't obsessed with 
with much, but I was just so committed to my children not being damaged and being sheltered from all that was going on mm. um, that I, I was especially hard on myself internally as a mother. Mm. I just wanted to do right by them. I just wanted them to be okay. Um, and I, if I had noted the over-responsibility that was growing, <laughs> that would have been the other indicator. Just the sheer, ah. so you've got to be the great friend. You've got to be the great mother. Oh, your husband's in this too, so you've got to be the great wife. You, and normally I would regulate how many things I was taking on and adjust my rhythms accordingly. In that moment, I wasn't doing that. How did you end up in the urgent care? What was yeah. what tipped you over? Um, well, I was ignoring the heart palpitations. The first day I was like, that's weird. Mm. The, the second day I um I ignored it more. <laughs> this is it's not good, Carrie. It's not good at all. It never then, is for any of us, but like you say, none of us thinks we'll ever get there. And particularly for an eight, yeah. you're bigger than that. Come on. Right? Like Absolutely. you got this power through. Mm -hmm. You've been through stuff before, bleed and carry on. And, <laughs> and the third, when it was three days of heart palpitations, I thought I'm just going to call a doctor to see if I need to see him sometime. Mm. And, and when I called, they ordered me there straight away. They, they said, look, I'm not even going to carry on this conversation with you much longer. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to tell them when you get there. And it, the guy's like, Repeat after me. What are you going to tell them when you get there? Use the words I'm using for you. Because I think he could tell that I wasn't taking it as seriously as I needed to. Mm. And he said, if you tell them what I tell you, they will see you straight away. And so I walked, walked in, told them, and immediately they rushed me into a room. Immediately. Wow. Wow. Okay, so you get there and uh, you're reading some leader's mail right now. It's just stress, anxiety, burnout. They're just almost staple conditions for a lot of leaders, particularly yeah. with everything we've been through with COVID. And by the Absolutely. time this airs, it'll be a new world again. Talk about the recovery and obvious, how many years ago was that, Joe, that that happened to you? It was six years ago. Yeah. All right. So you've got, you've got a little bit of distance between you and that moment. Can you talk about how you move through it and what are some of the changes that you've made yeah. since then? Um. Yeah, after I went to the doctor, the initial thing was he, I had a prescription for anti-anxiety um, medication. I, that was the first thing he did. He said, look, we need to give you something as you go on this process. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't too worried about that. That for me wasn't the, the big one. I was okay with saying I needed some medical support at that time. But sitting down with my people was the kind of moment of truth, hmm. really. And I, I mean, and when I say my people, my friends locally, my best friend in England, who I've known since I was 18, she was like, okay, <laughs> let's have the talk. <laughs> um, the, this is, these are, this is why I'm worried about you. This is what you ignored. This is what you need to hear. And you, sometimes you need a friend to That's be a that good friend. I mean, she, I mean, she's a, she's a, even my siblings introduce her as a sister. She's that mm. close in our, in our family. And she was like, this is what's got to stop. And so I started going to bed earlier. Um, mm. I admitted when I knew the words of a, of a modern family episode that I didn't need to see it again. <laughs> um, I, I started running again, um, which is a good thing for me. I love to run and I love, I, I decided where my intensity would go, mm. you know, and rather than my intensity going into endless activity, it would go towards my well-being. 
That's a really good way of framing that where, because you're right, you are, you can tell an intense person. So am I, but you can put your intensity into very unhealthy places. Absolutely. And so I decided, I had to decide what I would do. Um, I'm from a culture where alcohol is, um, I mean, in England, it's like part of the staple, but I thought I need to avoid certain things. I need to work out what foods aren't good for me right now. I'm not majorly into healthy things. Um, I mean, I like, I love healthy food, but I was just needing to be aware of, of Mm. if I'm rushing, if I'm hurrying on the inside, I won't be eating well either. I won't be, I won't be attending to my body. Well, that was another thing. And then I just did, I had to do less and I had to give myself some space for grief. And so the nature of my conversations with the therapist changed. And he said, okay, let now it seems like you're right. Let's talk about, let's grieve. Let's Mm. grieve. The other thing that I'd, I'd recognized that when all the church meltdown happened, it was around my 40th birthday. And he said, so you have this milestone year where things are going well. And then suddenly it doesn't, we need to process that together. We need to talk that through because there were these high hopes that were dashed. There were these longings that from your, from the depths of your story, remember when you had to be twice as good, remember Mm. when you, and being twice as good couldn't work here. It didn't matter how good you were. Everything fell apart. It didn't matter how hard you tried, how hard you worked. And so there was a real reckoning carry of Mm. what was going on in my inner world and how it was manifesting itself. Um, and, and so that in practice meant less, less doing, and it was hard because obviously we'd walked away from jobs, which meant we had to earn money somehow. Yeah. Um, but then it was, can you rely on the faithfulness of God at this moment? Can you begin to connect with your networks? And rather than from a place of proving, offer, you know, <laughs> um, connect right. with people again. Uh, I just had to frame it differently. But sometimes that mindset shift shift is the biggest leadership shift that that we need to make, isn't it? And it took me some time. And, and honestly, I'd love to say, and then I lived happily ever after. And yeah. I didn't um, because, because there are layers to these things. And so over the next couple of years, I, I kind of worked out, okay, this is, this is working for me. Now I need to do less again. And I just stayed more accountable. And I think I'm just aware that in times of crisis, this is what I'm prone to do. In times of crisis, I am prone to over-responsibility. I'm prone to running faster than I than I, uh, than I should. I am prone to, I may be sleeping at night, but that it may come out another way. And so if I know that about myself, how can I guard it before it's a problem? Were there fears on the side of recovery to doing less? Um, oh, gosh. yeah. Do you, can, can you, can you talk about those? Cause I think most driven leaders would say less. That sounds like recipe for failure. Disaster. Oh, absolutely. Because I had built my entire life on being twice as good to be equal. I wasn't trying to, comp- I wasn't competing to be the best, Carrie. Mm. I was competing to not be left behind. I was competing to have a chance, to have a shot. And so the idea of doing less at every fiber of my being caused me to panic because I thought, um, I, I have known there have been places, because this was what my aunt said when I was seven. She said, Joe, mm. even if they don't like you, even if they don't respect you as a woman or don't like you because you're black, if you're that good, they'll employ you anyway because it just makes sense financially. Mm. That's how good we need to be. And I have been in environments where um, it was useful that I was a woman. <laughs> um, it was 
Um, they didn't get called out at events on the lack of diversity if I was present. <laughs> and and some, and something, you know, and when I say that, I know that there are people who are really working hard for for an equitable platform. And so uh, so it can be a, I'm not saying that's true of every environment I've been in by right. a long, long stretch of the imagination, because everybody's got to start somewhere. Everybody's got to start somewhere. But um, I, I knew I had been in those environments. So I thought if I'm not twice as good, is good enough enough? Mm. Is will I still will I get employed? Will I um and w- and if I'm not employed, what will that mean for our family? Wow. You know what will it mean wow. for our um and what does it you know every time Carrie I go to an event um in the space that I meet a woman who looks like me or a woman who doesn't look like me but hasn't seen women on the stage and she's weeping she's mm. weeping because she hasn't seen herself there hasn't been that mirroring that says you are that that dream you have that idea and somehow i took on the responsibility of that um in some way because you don't want to be um you I, I, like you i'm excited about seeing people of different ethnicities yeah. and different generations and bringing their skill sets to bear because we we both know it makes everybody richer yeah it does everybody richer so when i'm the first um black woman speaker i want to make sure i'm not the last <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> Um, I want to make sure I'm not the last. And um, and so doing less made me fearful. Not that other people would have my opportunity. It wasn't like that. I'm I'm happy with that. It just made me wonder, will the less mean that I don't get to do things? Like, God, I do trust you to be equitable. I just don't trust society. So how right. it's got to work? <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I think we're human. I think we're fallen. I think we're broken. And I, and um, I think even with our best efforts, we've been falling short on things we know we could do better on. Mm. Um, so it, 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 it really was a faith journey. It yes. really was a faith yeah. journey to, to say, I'm not going to overdo it. And I'm going to see if my good enough is enough. And I'm going to use the word no again. I'm going to get good at the word no again. And, um, and allow that to be the lead in my, and, and so that I'm, and, and I learned two things. One, God is bigger and better than I thought. And mm. two, that there, there were partners in business and in the workplace who were looking for people who were enough, you mm. know, who would bring their stories of enough, who would tell their stories of burnout and be like, oh gosh, me too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? Why um, I'm always but, interested, Joe. You know, there, and it, it was a different journey, but it's been a good journey. Well, and sincere question, and I, I don't know how to frame it otherwise, so please don't hear it as trite, but how has doing less worked out for you? It, my, my, my theory is it probably hasn't oh. led to less, has it? Like, I mean, maybe you're working less, oh. but it, when you look at the results, the results aren't a fraction of what they were before, are they? No, I, I mean, ironically, greater creativity, yes. um, a couple of books, um, great relational connections, just engaging in relationships with the people I've worked with in different le- ways. My kids are glorious. They're teenagers and they're wonderful. Um, time in my marriage. I mean, it's been good. It's been good. And an ongoing check-in with friends who know that that is the way I can go, that I can leave mm. that doing way too easily. Um, so it's, I, I would say it's something that I, I do have to keep a check on. Particularly in crisis, I have to know when the the clouds are gathering, <laughs> yeah, and what my natural propensities are. Is there anything you miss about your old self? Um, 
Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, there's a little piece of me I miss pre-burnout carry. There's a little sliver that I'm like, oh, I used to enjoy that. I think there was, I, I kind of missed the belief that it worked. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes it did. Sometimes yeah. it worked. Yeah. I, I think it was, I had to like break up with overachievement. I had to, it was a mm. breakup. It was a toxic relationship. Um, so there are, and, and there are that sense of, and I, maybe it's simply pride of what, that kind of work twice as hard, got there and you've finally got it. Um, I, yeah, I've missed that from time to time for sure. Yeah. I, I think I have. Yeah. I think it's, I prayed oh, better before I burned out, but. Oh, um, I certainly prayed longer. Yeah, me anyway. too. I prayed longer and I think I prayed better. And I'm like, am I a pagan now? I don't understand. But my wife would say she sees way more fruit of the Holy Spirit in me now than she did 15 years ago. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's funny. I, I haven't asked that question before, but I'm like, yeah, when I'm listening to you talk, I just wanted to ask it because I do miss one or two little things, but I'm, I'm, I will take the current me all day long over the old me. Uh, totally. I think I have a different kind of courage now. I think mm. back then, a lot of my kind of let's do this was actually fear, was ah. actually, actually fear. Because I think that kind of drive can be fear driven of what you don't get, of what you'll miss. Again, I was fighting to be equal. Now I know I'm equal. And, and I don't, have, do you know what I mean? I know I'm equal. I know God has gifted me. And I know that as leaders, we're healthy in places where what we bring to the table is celebrated, not just tolerated. Um, and, and there's a peace that comes with that. And so the courage yeah. now is different. I still get afraid. I, for sure I get afraid, but, um, there is a, there, there is a, a Lord, I, I just want to serve you, but, and I want to be part of teams and environments and organizations that are going on this journey together where I don't feel like I'm hiding the things that I can contribute just in case it's too much. And that hmm. is very freeing, very freeing. I just want to underscore what you said. You're not trying to prove that you're equal. You know you're equal. We could almost stop right there. I want to keep going, <laughs> but I didn't want that to get lost in the moment. That's that's so healing. And I hope I hope that hits some leaders listening right now who maybe can relate to that part of your yeah. story. That yeah, you don't have anything. And you know, that happens. I mean, I've seen white guys who are, they got some chip on their shoulder and they're trying to prove something they never got yeah. from their dad or they're oh trying to God. prove yeah. something that happened on the playground when they were eight, you know? And it's like, yeah. I don't know what that is, but you need to lose it. Like, cause yeah. it's not helping you anymore. Yeah, totally. And it may, you may have had a way of handling it that worked for a while, but actually leaders, it's time to know you're enough. You're enough. Hmm. You're already good enough. And what, mm. and if you know that knowing that truth would change you in some way, then it's time for, to let it change you. Oh, I got to ask for the insomniacs I know and care about. How did you start sleeping again? Because that is a real issue. And I've never struggled with yeah. that. I've, I can sleep almost anywhere, anytime. So how, how, how did you, because that is a massive issue for a lot of people who are just struggling. And it's yeah. a compounding issue because you just get more and more tired, more and more frazzled. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that reverse for you? It took a little while and the medication actually helped. Yeah. The medication yeah. helped me. Um, and the processing of the pain helped me and the, 
So it felt like it was a holistically. It wasn't just I went to bed earlier. It was right. I was in therapy and really doing some work. So therefore, I wasn't thinking at night the things that I'd been pushing down all day. Um, hmm. And then, and then there were some things like I put my phone in a different part of the bedroom. Um, I didn't watch anything too interesting. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'd have a cup of herbal tea and I don't know whether the herbal tea helped. I think it was just the ritual of calming down, Ooh. like, and giving myself a minute made a big difference. I, um, yeah, I think those things help. And it did take a while. It took a few months. Oh, that's no, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I, I love that you raised a bedtime ritual because leaders talk about morning rituals all the time. But bedroom rituals, research would say, are just as important. And I always say, if you have your sleep, you have everything. So, yeah. you know, it really helps. It gives you a baseline. Um, you talk about your people a lot and you you encourage leaders to ask. And I, I love the fact that you come from a more communal. I mean, we're living in the hyper-individualistic West, mm -hmm. which doesn't always serve us well. Now, who are your people? Why is that an important question? Yeah, Um. I, I think I learned it from my mum and her and, and my aunts, because a lot of my aunts aren't actually biologically related to me. Hmm. Um, but that's how much they've been in our family and been part of our family. And I, what I've realized is that you, you know, even when we look back on history, Carrie, I think it was, who was it? Thomas Carlyle was this historian who had this kind of great man theory. And he yeah. had this idea that history was focused on these individuals. But actually, when we look at the stories of, of the great figures of history, there was a movement there. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, Nelson Mandela, there was a movement, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, there's a movement of people there's always been villages of people really around leaders doing different things that have made that world possible. Um, and that's not to take anything away from the, the, the wonderful gifting they have, but there, there's always been um, people there. So that's been something that's helped informed me, um, thinking I'm not as convinced of the great man theory as as it comes out because when you look at the the broader story there are there are more there's more than one story to tell mm -hmm. but what i what i've realized is that we need people who help us get roots and people who give us wings you know they mm. say that about um, it takes a village to raise a child i think it's true for leaders they say a kid needs roots and wings i think it's true for leaders and by roots i mean those people that keep us grounded you know that your your significant others. And by they could be your spouse. It could be a good friend. It could be a family member. Those, those are the people who know you anyway, who can call you on your junk, who will celebrate you, who you don't have to perform for. Those, those kinds of relationships bring us to life. But I think you need those relationships that give you wings, that connect you with other people, that let you know about that are your brain trust. You know, I can think of some great ideas, but um, when I've got a team, oh my goodness, those mm. ideas have nuance and texture. Um, when that team is rep representative contextually of the world I'm in, oh my goodness, they, I miss I miss faux pas. I gain insight and wisdom. Um, it's more fun mm. uh, and um, it's more creative. There's a there's a greater dynamic about it. So I, I I think some of that drivenness we could get rid of if we realized actually we did this stuff in community. And we did this stuff as we're with a village of people. And I, I would ask every leader to consider who's your village. And sometimes we're like, no, I'm doing it. Well, somebody's probably cooking for you. They're part of your village. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because they're doing things um, that you you don't have to worry about the mental load of them. 
you know what I mean? You don't have to think of other things because then- Oh, it really relieves anxiety. It totally does. If you have a great team, people sometimes say, you know, it's the hardest part about leadership, which in some respects is true. But yeah, it just takes the pressure off you as the leader. Um, I think I'm going to get this stat right. If it's wrong, just correct me. But I believe you said that depression and anxiety cost a trillion dollars a year in lost productivity. That was a McKinsey study from a couple of years ago. Is that accurate? Yeah. And could you talk about <laughs> what what we're going to do about that that challenge? And here we are, you know, I, I don't know by the time this airs where we'll be in the COVID crisis and the reconstruction of the world and our health and economy and borders. But um, you talk about anxiety and depression spiking. That was a 2018 study. It's probably even yeah. higher now. Well, quite. And and actually, it was um, it was the world the World Health Organization okay. did a study on it as well of mental health in the workplace. And so, and which is it's just fascinating globally that um, if it, if depression and anxiety are costing the global economy at that point a few years back, an estimated one trillion U.S. dollars per year per year. In lost productivity, what does that mean for our well-being, for human flourishing, for yeah. yes, yes, for our economies, but for family life, for just our our own well-being, and and like you say, as we as we navigate landscapes that we haven't before with a global pandemic, again, that um, I, I again I've seen, and and again as time goes on, we'll we'll learn more about what this means that we're dealing with with the kinds of situations that haven't been seen before. And just that alone causes greater anxiety. That alone, because we are not just having an unknown moment. It's an unknown era now. How do you help your team manage that? Because if you think about it, just, you know, Mm -hmm. you're right. You talked about your body burnout. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about the pressure we put on ourselves and the striving that we have to try to even get to equal, let alone surpass it, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So how are you coaching your team to the point where they, there may be a lower collective anxiety because you're their leader? There are two things I encourage us to do. Um, An internal one in terms of the questions we ask ourselves and one that looks Mm. at the landscape. So the internal question, I do I do go through the who are you before um, anyone told you who you're supposed to be, because I want to hear your, your story. I want to hear the story that has shaped you, the highs and the lows, the, the, the cadence of your story. And I, and, I, and I want them to be aware. And some of it is just that conversation, like in the conversation you and I have had saying, so when you were thinking that, how did that impact you? And right. how does that inform you now? What are the strengths of that information? And what perhaps, yes, that was, that was your childhood um, understanding of that situation. How is that nuanced now? Mm-hmm. And how does it show up under pressure or in times of joy? Those kinds of things. So that's one thing like I, I like to do because self-awareness is a great thing for us as leaders to, um, to know. I sometimes use those tools that recovery groups use in terms of hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. What do you do when you're hungry so that we're attending to our appetites, angry, um, with women, I ask you, I ask, often ask them, do you feel allowed to be angry? Mm. And so, so sometimes, it, and cult, what's the cultural nuance of anger in your family system? You know, how did, how, how did anger show up in your family system? For, and I actually ask that of men and women, because that, that's, I think that's true for all of us, isn't it? What does loneliness do to us? And what do we, what do we lean towards? And, and then obviously what does tiredness do? That's, that's some, those are some internal tools that I, and I like to use those as neutral language because it's not just it's I'm asking how are you doing but I'm giving us some tools that we don't feel as vulnerable by <laughs> you know some yeah, yeah. language for us all um 
and that's that's one of the things. Then when I'm get, getting us to look at the anxiety of the world, I, I remember hearing years ago, um, I used to work with a nonprofit that worked with churches on discipleship and mission called 3D Movements. And um, the leader at the time used to talk about the cultural earthquake and how these moments in society, and I, that language has been used a lot in, in, um, in popular culture too, about when the maps change, <laughs> when the landscape is so different by events in society that your ways of doing things, your maps don't work, your GPS doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I ask, maybe there have been some personal earthquakes, you know, you didn't expect someone to ask you for a divorce, earthquake, um, a diagnosis that no one wanted, earthquake something happens in your community, earthquake, or uh, as we've encountered in 2020, um, but have, have looked at other years as well. Uh, World War II, earthquake, yeah. 2008. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We don't earthquake. even have to describe yeah. them anymore. Now, we just say the year and we know what it means. But I, I encourage us to say, okay, this is one of those moments, this anxiety, we don't know what's happening, but, the, but this, this, this disorientation is the result of the, all the things that were familiar not being there anymore. <laughs> it's like going, driving into a neighborhood and you just don't recognize it. And yeah. that does. And, I, and even saying that makes people think, okay, it's not just me. <laughs> we are, we are all dealing with this thing. And, and I found in those moments that, um, sorry, I have to just give you a, a proviso. I'm addicted to alliteration. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I found some things, um, really helpful for us as leaders when we do that, that, that how we, um, what is it, what does it look like to be calm in that moment? And how do we find a place of calm? Um, uh, and so that's more to your own internal rhythms. Yeah. What does it look like to be compassionate in that moment? And what are the limits of your compassion in the, in those spaces? Um, because everyone's disoriented and so people are going to act funny. <laughs> and when I say funny, I just mean weird. So how, what are the limits of our compassion and what does it look like for us to have courage? In those times. Now, when I learned about this cultural earthquake, um, when I was working with 3D, and we, we we were talking about churches, so we talked about compassion and connection and things like that as well. But I'm talking in terms of just the internal leader, and asking some questions of how, what are you thinking before you make a move in terms of what you do? What does it look like to be calm? What does it look like to be compassionate? And what um, and what will it look like to be courageous for you before you do a thing? Hmm. before you do a thing that, that those things have been helpful and we're in the middle of it um with our teams those are, they, they've just been yeah. helpful in terms of our posture right now before we do i think that's incredibly perceptive and and helpful what would you say to leaders listening who are like joe that's awesome but that sounds like a counselor's office i'm trying to run a company i'm trying to run a church like yeah that what would you say to them because uh, I agree, I, I try to care for the whole person as a boss, but that is still not commonplace. Um, no, totally. And 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 they're right. It's the the hard thing is if you want productivity out of your people, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I think part of the part of the tension is you want to get things done and move things forward, but your people have to be in a good place to be able to do that. <laughs> yep. So I, I would still bring you back to that place of compassion and say, I know the end goal is really important, particularly in these pressure times, particularly in these pressure times, but you're going to have to give people some space to, and yourself space to breathe. Hmm. And then, and then say, okay, what I would, um, I would say, what does it look like? One of the big challenges in times when everything's shaken is what, what in our expectations can stay the same and what has to change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
because uh, uh, we can say, okay, we need a plan and we need a strategy. And we do. But if we're making a plan for a world that no longer exists, that plan will frustrate us. So true. So we, we, our first exercise might be observing our, our clients, observing our church community, observing our teams to see what's actually happening and then responding. Joe, you've got a new book called Ready to Rise. It's been out for a little while. Do you want to tell us why you wrote it? I I think we've danced around so many of the themes that you cover in the book already in a really powerful way, Uh, like saying yes to who you are and uh, disempowerment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But who's the book for and what's it about? Yeah, the book centers women. And and I remember someone saying, does that mean it's only for women? And I said, well, I've read lots of books where the stories were all male and I've got some great things out of them. <laughs> I have. I've had some wonderful, just some wonderful training and investment from people who don't look like me, who aren't the, who aren't my gender. And so I'm still going to say, but but this will give you some insight into women's ex- lived experience in their leadership journey. Mm-hmm. So so you, you might feel sometimes you're on the outside looking in, but that doesn't mean it's not for you in some ways. It's not that it's not valuable. Right. So it does center women. And when I'm, when I'm, what, what I'm, what um, has motivated me in this is that often for women, the leadership journey, whether it's corporate or community or nonprofit or church, isn't a linear path. It's just not that always that straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to just share the things I've learned over the years, the things I've observed over the years that have helped me grow in my leadership journey. Um, I've often found women looking for mentors and sponsors and wanting to be connected, better connected. So I, I, my hope, and again, like I said earlier on, I often met, I've often met a lot of women crying in bathrooms saying, I feel called to lead. I've got an idea for a business. I don't know what my next step's going to be. I don't know where to go with this. And so I wanted to put a resource in their hands for the journey that as they, and well, and also, Kerry, the other thing about it I'm struck by is we are living in a time where the people who we're valuing as leaders is changing. You know, mm. it might be that grocery store, store worker who's been cleaning everything so that you could buy your food. It's definitely the healthcare workers. It's the teachers who are working out of the box to make sure our families remain educated and stuff. They're leaders. They're influencers. Oh, yeah. They are. Um, we're realizing who we really need. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how, how much we've really needed them. And and they're making decisions. They, they've they had to make decisions which have determined people's well-being, their life or death scenarios. Yeah. Have it's, they had any investment to encourage them along the way? So yeah. Really interesting. 2020, we're seeing healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers and first responders mm-hmm. uh, sort of getting the elevation we gave firefighters after 9-11. Yes. Right. Which is, it's not that firefighters are any less, they do incredible work, but yeah, you're right. They're forgotten heroes. Okay. Last question for you. Um, Curious, you mentioned changing leadership styles and who we value as heroes shifting. Can you talk about that in the leadership space? I mean, for years, people have said the whole whole kind of command and control model of leadership is disappearing. How else do you see the model of leadership shifting in the future? I think as we embrace the diversity of our world, as we embrace different ethnicities and cultural stories, we will, we receive some nuance. I think, I think a leader without cultural competency is a leader with a interesting deadline. Oh yeah. You know, um, without some kind of cultural awareness to the stories of the people in your community. 
Mm. I, I honestly, I think it's our job. I think it's integral. We live, you even if you don't live in a neighborhood which is especially ethnically or socioeconomically diverse, um, if a lot of us leaders want to change the world, <laughs> we yeah. want to change the city, we want our business to impact the communities. Have you walked in those communities recently? Mm. Are you, are you, are you, do you ha when you look at the list of friends and places you're learning from, does everybody look like you, vote like you, live like you? Because, and, and that's not to say that they're not valuable. I'm just saying we need to enrich that. En enrich your understanding. Let's, let's maximize your gifts. I, this is not a chastisement of your gifts. It's because we want your gifts to go further. And we want human flourishing to touch every part of society. But that will require that your cultural competency and awareness is on the upswing rather than on the down low. As I look to the future, and, and actually not even the future, as I look to the now, yeah. as I look to the moment we're in, as we look to um, the schools, um, our neighbors, it's just really vital that as leaders we are culturally cognizant because not everybody experiences the world in the same, they, the same way that we do. Not everybody experiences our community, our city, our church in the way that we do, our business in the way that we do. And we could be missing out. You could be missing out on, on in, in your business. You could be missing out economically in your church, in the, the richness of your community. It's hard work for sure, but some of the best things are. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've not known many leaders that are afraid of that, really. <laughs> yeah, 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 often yeah. we're pulling you back and telling you to sit down, not the other way around. So I think that that for me is is not an option. That's not a sideline minor course. That is a fundamental part of our leadership journey. And that's really good advice uh, getting into uh, one more follow-up I've got for you. So look at me. I'm a white male in his 50s, and mm -hmm. I'm a leader. How yeah. would you counsel me? to enter into this new reality? Because really, I'm sort of the target of what everyone is talking about, right? It's like white males, mm -hmm. you know, we've held leadership for a long, long time. So how do I embrace the new reality? How do, how do, I, how do I empower other people? Like, give me, give me some yeah. pointers on how to do that and do it well. So I would, I would go for, there are a couple of things I would do. I would, depending on where you're based and what you're looking at, I would say, like who's in your city? Who's in your neighborhood? Who's in your, just for you to become aware of? Um, I would ask who you're learning from in terms of who you're reading, who you're listening to. The great thing is, in terms of podcast, means that there is a wealth, there is a, a wealth of opportunity for you to to hear from different voices, different stories, and mm. and it will require some curiosity on our part. But I I would say when we look on you, when you look at your phone and you have your podcast list, is everybody the same ethnicity as you? Um, I would, I'm not saying delete anybody. I'm just saying add a few. Yeah. Add a few. Um, and That's a add good the, point. And lead the stories and, and just to hear, you know, we go in as, we're lifelong learners as leaders. So this is a learning, op rather than feel it's a, aren't you a terrible person? Cause you've not, we don't need, there, we don't have time for that. <laughs> you know I mean, let me speak as an eight to us all. We do not have time for that. We <laughs> just need to get on with it. So I want to encourage us to think what's our, where do we want to learn? Um, if you're not, and again, I, I'm aware of the framework of theological conviction, but I will still say this. How do we learn from, um, how, do you, how will you learn from women? Mm -hmm. Who are you listening to? Who are you learning from? Um, how are you, um, how is that nuancing your leadership? Because so much has been done by us not hearing other people's stories. And, and we meant well. We really did. We hoped that this would be open to someone else, but it wasn't informed by their lived experience. Right. Um, and that impacts that. Uh, so that's that's a thing I would do. I would look 
to um, if you're a church leader, I would build I would look at how your goals are this year for building relationship as peers with um, leaders of different ethnicities. Church, mm. The churches in your cities. How can you connect with them? I would go to the networking events that are in your business, in your, in your business sphere, the networking events or the organizations that are talking about diversity and inclusion in your talent. Just find out what you can. So there, there will be a research element to this. I, I want to, and it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Right. Um, but that's okay because it's going to enrich your leadership and it's going to enrich your teams and it's going to enrich your output and it's going to be brilliant. It's, and it's mm. a worthy thing. It's not just a nice thing to do. This is strategic. And it's it's the right thing to do. And then I would encourage those of us who have power, what and of various kinds, who are you mentoring and who are you sponsoring? You know, mm. most of my opportunities, Carrie, have been like when I think of my breakthrough moments as a leader, and you asked um at one point, I remember there were two particular actually, actually, there's been a fair few particular leaders at given moments who have who have been a, a mentor to me and a spot. They worked out how to mentor, even though different genders, different, um, different stories. Um, they were great listeners. They're like, I actually don't know how I'm mentoring you. So, but I know the principle is I've got to invest in you. So how are we going to do this? <laughs> but they also sponsored me in terms of, they put my name at the table. Mm. And if you want to, and a number of us will say, well, I want to do that, but I don't know anybody. So you've got to start with working out the relational piece so that you can um, put their names at the table, or maybe you go and visit their table once in a while. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah, I do. Those are, those are some practical things that we can do. So start with the research and the learning, then think of the relationships that you're building and, and give yourself longer goals on that and give yourself objectives. I mean, if we aim at nothing, that's what we'll get. Yeah. Pretty yeah. If we yeah. hope for everything and aim at nothing, we will just be like, oh, that's not my heart. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But, but what I've noticed in the leaders that I've worked with over the years, you guys have got strategies and talents and innovation. You can do this. You really can for human flourishing. The potential is phenomenal. That really is, is fantastic and hyper-practical advice. Joe, anything else you want to share? Um, I think one last thing, um, one of the stories I tell in the book, and and it's not one I've hidden, it's just I haven't t told it very often, is of a woman who in her 90s gets an award for being England's most inspiring learner. Wow. Um, in her 90s, she gets an English um, qualification, a math one, and a computer science. And when they, her name is Emily May Butterfield. And what happens is she, um, she left school at 12 because a teacher called her stupid. She ran out, never went back. Um, and and this, it, she was, it was the year 2000, she got the award. So when they're telling the story about her life, they talk about how in the World War II, she gets involved in the war effort. She joins the fire service, does all these incredible things and notices in England that kids are being evacuated for their safety. So she starts to, um, she starts to look after kids. She feels completely out of her depth. She feels, cause she can't, she can barely read. She hasn't got all the qualifications as such. But the landscape of the world is changing around her because World War II is a time of real and genuine fear. And she just does what she can. Yeah. Years later, she's about 70 and she's asked to take hold of um, or to foster a, a, a preschooler and a baby. And and everybody could have said, really, you've been doing this 30, 40 years now. You've done a great job. Stop. And she does it one one a couple more times. Years later, 
the preschooler is um he is in international finance he's a married father he's wonderful doing really well and i'm the baby and i in times of crisis i come back to her story and i come back to her story because we often feel out of our depth as leaders and we often feel like we don't know how we navigate this changing world i'm not skilled for this i'm not ready for this i'm not prepared for this but we may have a couple of things that we can do we do what we can and we don't know the legacy that we're building and i just want to encourage us whether we are single or married black white more degrees than a thermometer never had a degree at all um you 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 will all have times when you're out of your depth but you also have gifts that you can unwrap that could help leave a legacy. And I just want to encourage us in times of good, but also in times of crisis to be open to that. Joe, that's incredible. Like you, I had no idea. So one more time and you end up being that child. Yeah. Wow. And your foster mother was 70? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was the 70s and you know things happened then. So <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Yes. What? Wonderful woman. What a powerful story that is. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, it's an honor. I love to, yeah. tell, I love to talk about her. She didn't let us talk about her much when she was alive. Um, I told her I would. <laughs> I told her I'd tell everybody because I think she's an, ex an incredible example to us all of um, unexpected but incredibly influential leadership. Hmm. Well, the book is called Ready to Rise. Uh, Joe, thank you so much. I've This has been a fascinating conversation. Really got me thinking about things I hadn't thought about in quite the same way, which is sort of the goal of conversations like this. Yeah, so thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. And thank you for all you do, Carrie. I think it's just such a wonderful resource for people. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a joy to have you on. And uh, thank you so much, Joe. Appreciate you. Thanks. Yeah, you have one body and your leadership lives in it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. And having paid the price for not paying attention to that, I never want to pay that again. And I don't want you to pay that price either. So I've got a What I'm Thinking About segment on, I think, one of the most important hacks you can have to avoid burnout, stay healthy, become more productive, which is sleep. I want to share some of the pro tips with you. And that's coming up in a few minutes. In the meantime, you may want transcripts or show notes for today's episode. And we have, well, you know, we'll have probably 50,000 people who will hear or watch this episode, but only a fraction head on over to the show notes. We'll get, you know, five to 10,000 of you who do that. But if you do that, you will find a treasure trove of quotes, insights, kind of like the clip notes for all of this. And you can find that for free at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 354. There's also transcripts of our conversation. We get those done for you. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, but sometimes if I listen to someone else's podcast and I really like it and they don't have transcripts, I will go and order one so I can learn more. But you never have to do that with this show because we do that for you. It is included free. And uh, that's because of our partners too. We want to thank Glue. Uh, I'm super excited about what they are doing to help you figure out who your online audience is. Make sure you check them out at glueinsights.com forward slash carry. The Unstuck Group has a masterclass coming out on how to thrive in the post-pandemic world. Because you listen to this show, you get a free copy of Unit 1. It's a one-day masterclass. You can register for $99. But if you want your freebie, head on over to theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry now 
and you can pick that up. So next episode, I'm so excited to have John Eldridge. This was like other bucket list stuff for me. Uh, He has been influencing my life and ministry for years, and we sat down and had a meaningful conversation, and I learned so much about John, including lots of things that kind of surprised me and amazed me and warmed my heart. Here's an excerpt. What you just said about Dunbar's numbers is a very kind thing to inform people of. This isn't criticism. This isn't, hey, uh, it's kindness to say to those uh, under 30, look, what you think is normal it is actually very brutal on the human soul. Mm. Humanity was never living like this for thousands and thousands of years. For thousands of years, the pace of human life was three miles an hour. Yeah, it was, that's a it great was the, point. It was the pace of walking. So that's coming up next time on the podcast. Subscribers, you get that absolutely free. We've also got uh, Darius Daniels coming up, JP Pokluda about the future of the church, Sam Collier, Levi Lusco is back with a solo interview I did with him, one of the best previews into the future of the church. I've got a marathon with Gordon McDonald, his life at 80 and what he's seen coming up this fall. Angela Santomero, creator of Blues Clues and so much more. Lecrae's also on the show uh, in the next few months. So, hey, what we're trying to do is create a leadership library of just case studies and excellence for you, of some of the best leaders out there, what they've learned, what they've gone through. That's what this show's all about. And I really hope it helps you. So what I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about you and I've been thinking about how to make sure you don't burn out in this crazy season. So I want to talk to you about something that doesn't get a lot of attention and that is sleep. Now, when I was cutting my teeth in leadership in the 90s and early 2000s, it was routine practice to brag about how little sleep you got. It's like, you know what? I can be a great leader on four hours sleep a night. And I kind of bought that lie. And then in 2006, I burned out and I'm like, okay, this is really bad. Uh, This is not going to work. And uh, one of the things I've really adjusted over the last 14 years or so is my sleep. And particularly in the last five years, I'm paying more and more attention to that to the point that, you know, when travel was still a thing and it's not for me because The borders are still closed in Canada, but anyway, uh, but we have almost no coronavirus, so go figure that out. Anyway, you know, I stopped doing, I I never really did red-eye flights. I used to do early morning flights, and I thought, no, let's do midday flights because I didn't like getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning to head to the airport. And I've really prioritized my sleep. And then last summer, I, I did a few things that really made a big difference. Back on this show, oh, I don't know what the episode was, but Larry Osborne, who's been on a few times, said to me, he doesn't wake up with an alarm anymore. And I'm like, really? Because I always set an alarm. And uh, I really listened to that. And I thought, I'm going to experiment with that. So for maybe two years now, I have not set an alarm in the morning, which freaked me out at first unless I have something I absolutely have to get done. And that might happen once a month, once a month, maybe I might set an alarm, maybe less than that. You know, certainly if I'm preaching on Sunday morning, there's an alarm, but I'm not preaching as much as I used to. So I almost never wake with an alarm anymore. And it's really interesting because normally I'm up anyway, then between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning, but you kind of wake up with your uh, circadian rhythms. And then uh, trying to improve my sleep, I read a book by Nick Littlehales, uh, simply called Sleep, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And he has all kinds of stuff. He coaches pro athletes on how to sleep better. And I mean, it's everything from like blacking out your room, like garbage bags on the windows in hotel rooms to this sleep kit. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So no, no offense, Nick. But you know, the one thing I picked up 
is uh, a new sleep position. So it, it's kind of hard to explain, and I wish I could show you. But uh, what you do is you figure out your dominant hand. So I'm right-handed, and you sleep on the opposite side. So you become a side sleeper, okay? Some of you are like, I'm a back sleeper or a stomach sleeper or whatever. Try being a side sleeper, and then... Uh, move your body into almost the fetal position. So your legs are bent a little bit, your torso is bent at the waist, and um, your hands are in front of you. So can you kind of picture that? If you think of overhead, you're almost in the fetal position. So it's almost like a sideways crouch, and your knees are bent. And uh, your left arm, I usually sleep, this is like really particular, with my left arm kind of extended out from my shoulder and then my right arm folded over it. He says that increases your deep sleep. And you know what? He is right. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. So your arms kind of form a V in front of your chest and uh, your legs are bent. Uh, you're bent a little bit at the waist. So you're almost in the fetal position and you sleep like that. And I'll tell you, I was getting an hour to two hours of deep sleep a night. I will get now on good nights, three or four hours of deep sleep. And the difference that makes when you wake up in the morning is unbelievable. Now, how do I know I'm actually getting deep sleep? So I've had Apple watches for years. If you have any kind of smart watch, um, I actually use an app called Auto Sleep, A-U-T-O-S-L-E-E-P. And uh, that just tracks my sleep. So I have all the notifications off on my watch and I put it in theater mode so it doesn't come on in the middle of the night or stay on, but it tracks my sleep while I sleep. And that will tell you how much sleep you got, how much was deep sleep. The deep sleep is the most restorative sleep you can get. So I'm normally getting between two and four hours, which is way up from max of an hour earlier. And uh, so between not setting an alarm and uh, tracking my sleep with the sleep app and then using that new position, oh, I, I'll tell you, last year or two, I've never felt better. And here's what I believe. Arrested you is a better, kinder, and more productive you. So while I'm recording this, uh, I had a meeting that ran late two nights ago, didn't get to bed on time, kind of had a crappy day yesterday. It was just one of those days that never ended. And then last night, I'm just like, no, I'm going to bed early. I was asleep at 10. I got up at 5.30. I feel fantastic and... Um, I, I just think your sleep is a superpower if you're a leader. So that's a little bit about sleep. Uh, I do not get eight hours a night as much as I wish I would. Uh, I usually sleep between seven, seven and a half at the most. I can't push myself past. However, I am a napper. And most days I will nap for anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes in the middle of the day. And got my favorite spot on the couch to do that. And that kind of gives me another boost. So bottom line, Take your sleep seriously. Now you would think, well, I'm going to lose productivity. Actually, if you sleep well, you will be more productive. You will feel better. And guess what? If you're married, you'll be a better spouse. If you're a parent, you'll be a better parent. If you're a boss, you'll be a better boss because you won't be grumpy all the time. So anyway, I hope that helps. And you know, <laughs> you have one body and your leadership lives in it. So take care of it. So those are some thoughts. I know I'm kind of on my soapbox for sleep but I really think that's important. I see so many zombie leaders walking around and you don't need to be one of them. So anyway, that's one of the ways I get everything done that I get done. I hope that was helpful. Hope it wasn't too technical and uh, we'll be back with a fresh episode next time. In the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth 
to help you lead like never before.